My guest this week is a actor, a writer, a producer, a podcaster, a radio personality, and a commenter on modern American life. He was an intern and a page at Saturday Night Live, which helped lead him to two decades as the right-hand man to SNL legend Dennis Miller on his radio show, television show, and podcast. Now he hosts two very funny podcasts, The Blackcast and Who Are These Broadcasters? I'm excited to meet Christian Black. Hey, Ian. Nice to meet you, and uh, thanks so much for having me on today. Oh, no problem. So you were in Tuxedo, New York? That's where my high school was. It was Tuxedo, New York. I grew up in a town called Greenwood Lake, New York, which at the time uh, our kids were – we didn't have a high school in Greenwood Lake. Still don't, actually. But at that time, they went to uh, Tuxedo High, and uh, it was a very small town. Two towns put together. My graduating class was 63 people. Uh, my wife grew up in Southern California where I live now. She had like 500 kids in her class, you know, so uh, in her grade anyway. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's sort of a very uh, idyllic small town area. Uh, Greenwood Lake used to be a resort town. Uh, you'll hear it mentioned in Mean Streets. They actually go to it on The Sopranos in one of the later seasons. They spend like a weekend there. And uh, but if you grow up there, all you want to do is just be anywhere else. You want to be somewhere like New York City and you want to, you know, go to where things are more interesting and exciting. But uh, as an adult, you realize like, oh, it's actually a great place to grow up. What were your early television memories? Um, I mean, obviously, like as a kid, uh, you know, I loved uh, all the you know, Saturday morning cartoons was very important. Uh, and I was always an early riser. So I would get up and uh, when I was a little bit older, I would, uh, you know, I'd have to play uh, the Atari 2600, but with the sound all the way down. So I would just play silently in the living room so I didn't wake anyone up. But uh, I would watch, uh, you know, and these are the days where the broadcast networks would sign off at night and then they'd sign back on in the morning. So I would wait. I would see that test pattern and then a show comes on and some of that early morning programming for children was terrible. There were shows like The Patrick Family, The New Zoo Review, and I watched all of them uh, because it's what was on television. And uh, television was very important, but there was always a distinction. It was partially because of the layout of my house, but we never ate meals in front of the television. Once in a while, we'd get a TV dinner, we'd sit, you know, maybe if there was a movie on or something, but we would, it was not like that's where you had, it was a separate activity from eating a meal. And uh, I've met a lot of people who grew up in a very different way, but that was very important to my mom. And uh, it's something that I, I try to do with uh, my kids. We make exceptions if like, you know, the world series is on or something like that. But for the most part, we, uh, we don't do that. So, but I mean, I watched the everything, you know, there were you know, game shows, kids shows, adult shows. You and I were talking before we started, I just finished doing an episode of a, a podcast that I'm a regular on called uh, Christmas specials we love but it's also focused on holiday specials we just talked about the WKRP in, in Cincinnati episode with the turkey drop and you know so it's all stuff that you know younger viewers don't necessarily know but uh if you're as a, if you're as obsessed with TV from that era uh you you know very well and you know before you're we starting you were talking about you know you got very interested in Saturday Night Live as a young age uh, I was uh, a huge uh, fan of the mid to late 80s cast, which, yes, included Dennis Miller, Dana Carvey, eventually Kevin Nealon, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz. But when Nick at Night started airing reruns of the original cast, now they were heavily edited down to half an hour. But um, I was fascinated by that because it was like these are all these huge stars like Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and they used to be on TV, you know. So uh, just learning as much as I could, which in those days, in the mid to late 80s, was not as easy to do, you know. Somewhere in my house, I still have a People magazine from the 15th anniversary of Saturday Night Live, which was in 1989, and uh, I, I learned as much as I could from that, you know. And I was always fascinated by the middle era, the early 80s era when Lauren Michaels was gone, where you had Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo, because those were never on TV at that point. And eventually I got Comedy Central. Uh, it was eventually called Comedy Central. It used to be the Comedy Channel. There was another one called Ha. They merged together called Comedy Central. 
Uh, but getting to see those, I was just like, it was like, it was like treasure, you know, like getting to see the episode where Eddie Murphy did buckwheat for the first time where, you know, he does the, the buckwheat sings uh, album that you could buy. So yeah, it was a very important part and it's so much so that I still always record SNL and eventually I do watch it. I don't always enjoy it, but there are things that, that I pull out. It's a, it's a, it's really a force of habit. It's very, you know, as somebody in comedy once said that, uh, and this was in the late nineties, they said this, that Saturday Night Live is a mediocre restaurant in a great neighborhood. It has that very familiar time slot. It doesn't have to be great. It just has to be passable. And there's a lot of years where it was pretty far from great, but most people like myself would watch it anyway. Do you know who that was? I'm not sure if I know who said that because I've heard a few people say it. Uh, I think Gil I, Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, Gilbert Gottfried. Okay, that makes sense actually. Yeah, because Gilbert Gilbert would know. You want to talk about? There's a there's that list of people that weren't really a good fit on SNL, but were very good in in other aspects of their career. Janine Garofalo, uh, Sarah Silverman. Uh, only as a writer, but Louis C.K. There's there's a lot of great examples of people that it just wasn't the right fit for them. And it was amazing because I thought I was the only person who remembered the Patchwork Family. Oh my god, I I I was thinking of uh, of News of Review first, and then Patchwork Family came to me. It was on, uh, you know, I grew up in the New York area. It was on Channel Two, like at right. six six in the morning on Saturday and Sunday, I think. Yeah, I just remember that would be the first thing before cartoons. Yeah, before the before the stuff you wanted to watch, you know. And let's not forget Davy and Goliath were on. There's this the claymation, you know, very you know, religious stories. I, I I don't even think I liked any of it, but I watched it all. Oh, it was on TV, so you had to. Exactly. Yeah, and the first episode I ever watched was uh, Pee Wee Herman, Queen Ida, and the uh, Buntem Zydeco Band. Was, yeah, I've I've seen that one since. That was uh, that was that first season where Lorne Michaels was back with uh, Dennis Miller, uh, John Lovitz, Nora Dunn, and then the rest of the cast who were were gone at the end. You know, the the idea that you know we talk about people who didn't fit into that show but are otherwise brilliant. Robert Downey Jr. is you know one of the greatest actors of the last forty years, but boy, he sure shouldn't have been on Saturday Night Live, and. You know, Anthony Michael Hall and Terry Sweeney, uh, Randy Quaid, you know, it, it, yeah, that it, that fast that season is very fascinating, you know, because it's it's like it's like if you're a fan of a band who puts out an album that you're it just just bombs. You're like, I want to know everything about why that album bombed. Well, Saturday Night Live has seasons like that. And that's that's pretty close to the top of the list. Like really 1980 through 1985. There's a lot of questions. They're usually the nicest people. I've had a lot of them on. They're usually really nice. One of the nicest people, sweetest, most genuine people I ever met was Mary Gross, who was on Saturday Night Live from uh, 81 through 85, the, uh, the, the 84, 85 season. And it was for the SNL 25th anniversary. I was a page working at that. And uh, she she asked if she could sit at my table up in the rainbow room. And uh, I was like, of course you can. And she's like, thank you. I've just, I've been standing so nice, uh, standing all night. And, you know, I just talked to her for a couple of minutes and I was like, you know, she's, a, you know, she was, she was alfalfa in those buckwheat sketches. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, you know, no, not a whole household name, but uh, yeah, some, some very sweet people. Yeah. I interviewed her the day they declared Joe Biden, the winner of the election. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, and she was, she was very happy. Another guy, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, I would imagine. Another guy you know. I talked to who's no longer with us, uh, Dan Vitale. I know the name because I would see it in the credits, but uh, yeah, so yeah, he was a feature player in 85 86. Oh, okay, that's okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you went, you went to Marist College, I did in uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York, and uh, Poughkeepsie is known for having. Uh, one of the, the finest institutions uh, in America and Vassar College, I went to the other school. I went to Marist College, which I think was great for what I wanted. I wanted to go to a good communication school and I wanted it to be not too far from home, but also not too far from the city. I had no interest in going to Syracuse. People who wanted to get into broadcasting, that was like the program you wanted to do. But I was just like, I, I can't imagine somewhere I'd less want to live than Syracuse, New York. So uh, Poughkeepsie it was, and I was about an hour away from home and 
Yeah, if you took the train, it was an hour and a half to two hours into Manhattan. And more than anything, I knew that I wanted to intern as much as I could. And I interned my entire senior year of college. In the fall, I interned on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And then in the spring, I interned on Saturday Night Live. Well, I've heard you talk about Saturday Night Live a lot. Uh, What was Conan like? It was a lot of fun. I mean, the show had been on for about four years at that point. So it it wasn't new. They had figured out what worked. Conan was very laid back. I don't know anything about what he's like in the years after that. I just know he was really, really nice, very friendly. He would make small talk with us, you know, with the, you know, he knew that a lot of the interns, because someone who worked there was an alumni of Marist College. So, like, I remember, you know, he'd be like, are you guys part of the Marist Mafia? And, uh, you know, if it was Monday, he would be like, but you guys got really drunk over the weekend, didn't you? You know, just stuff like that. Small talk, just talking about college, whatever. Uh, So that was great. And there were some really, really wonderful people who worked there. Some incredibly talented writers, but, you know, they're just different facets. You know, you get to know the the talent bookers. Uh, I worked in the music department because I was there five days a week. So uh, I was around all the, all the bands watching them rehearse, you know, bringing them up to their dressing room, taking them back down to the car at the end of the night. Uh, it meant that I sometimes stayed a little bit later than some of the other interns, which I, I don't think I realized. Uh, but, uh, you know, I will uh, I will forever hate the band Our Lady Peace because after they performed on the show, they decided it was time to have a band meeting. And I eventually had to get the stage manager to kick them out because I had missed like three of the buses that I was going to take back to my parents' house. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, no great loss not having Our Lady Peace in my life. But, uh, you know, so I, I definitely got to see a lot because I was down by the studio. So I'd see people going in and out. And, uh, you know, Amy Poehler used to do the recurring character of Andy's little sister. So very early, you know, just making small talk with people like her. Robert Smigel would come on to do Triumph and he did some other, he'd do the uh, clutch cargo, the bits where they, he'd have the mouth that moves, you know, and he'd be like Bill Clinton or whatever. So just getting to talk to these people who, Smigel at that point, I knew who he was. I mean, Polar was definitely, you know, up and coming, but, you know, just to think about some of the people that I talked to, you know, just sitting there making small talk. Some of the people who are on the other end of the phone when you answer it, it was very cool. And uh, it was it was a show, especially in that era that I I just loved Conan's brand of humor. You know, I remember 94 in November. um, I turned 17 on the Monday. On that Friday, I was in the audience. That's how much I liked Conan because you had to be 17. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, it used to be very easy to get Conan tickets. You you would call and they'd be like, when do you want to come? I'm like, well, how exactly. long is it? It's like, do you want to come tomorrow? I'm like, well, no, but I'll come on like Tuesday. And uh, yeah, because what I wanted more than anything was to go to a Letterman taping. He was on CBS at that point. But that process was was very hard to get through at that point, at least once he first moved. But uh, I went to a lot of Conan tapings before I interned, before I was a page, and then obviously I saw a lot more tapings. But uh, it was fun. It was a it, it was a great show to go and see uh, live. And I don't know, it just it it yeah, it was a big. It's on a major network, the biggest network on TV at the time. But it still it had a little bit more of like a small feel, you know, it was like, oh, this is my show, this show that starts at 1230 at night, you know. And did you ever go to, to SNL before you worked there? I went to SNL when I was an intern at Conan. Uh, one of the segment producers uh, also worked at SNL, so he got me on the list. And I went to uh, dress rehearsal, and the show was John Lovitz hosting. He can't come back to host. This is in November '97. Musical guest Jane's Addiction. That's why I went to that one because Jane's Addiction essentially got back together. Flea was in the band, so it wasn't really Jane's Addiction, but it was still pretty cool to hear those songs. And so I went, and I've told this story uh, a couple of times. When you go to the dress rehearsal for Saturday Night Live, it's a half an hour longer than the main show, and part of that is that Weekend Update, the fake news segment, has you know probably about five more minutes of extra jokes that they're trying. And uh, this was uh, in the waning days of Norm MacDonald as the anchor of Weekend Update, and the jokes are just bombing. And I have a VHS of this somewhere. 
there's there's one voice laughing at like everything Norm says, and it's me. <laughs> and a lot of those jokes did not make the cut. But uh, when I was an intern a few months later, I I uh, made a copy of that uh, that dress rehearsal because I'm like, I kind of want to have that. But uh, yeah, so it was the only time I got to see it. But especially as a page, you have to kind of work the show, you know, and, it, you know, there's a lot of different spots you can stand the, you know, so like you could be standing on the eighth floor, eighth floor. You're basically there to watch the audience. A big part of being a page is watching the audiences for these shows and making sure that, you know, nobody decides to jump up. And especially for SNL, cause it's live that, you know, nobody decides that this is going to be their moment to get on camera. There's also like other like security there, but you know, you're sort of like the first line of defense to make sure that nothing goes wrong. Okay. And then you interned on uh, Saturday Night Live the next year. Yeah, it was the, the next uh, semester. So it was, yeah, it was the beginning. Uh, so January 1998. And the, the first show that I was an intern for was Samuel Jackson. Musical guest was Ben Folds 5, or maybe just Ben Folds. No, Ben, ben Folds 5. Yeah, Ben Folds 5. And that also was the show where Norm Macdonald midweek was fired from weekend update and Colin Quinn took over. And, uh, you know, and people are surprised sometimes I've been in interviews where people didn't realize that Norm stayed on the show for a couple months after that, just not on weekend update. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I always liked Colin Quinn going back to re remote control, but, uh, just in general, I thought he was very funny. I thought he was good on the show and I also love Norm. So I, I was basically was a, as much of a fence sitter as you could be. And I was, uh, did my best to, uh, ingratiate myself with the norm camp and the Colin camp. And I would, uh, I would uh, submit jokes for weekend update cause they take jokes from outside sources. And a lot of them would be aspiring writers or writers on other kinds of television or something that would fax them in. Um, but then I would basically just write my jokes and hand them in, uh, I think, every Friday. Now, people say that this had nobody knew that this was going on, and neither did Colin Quinn. And I believe that. But I just wanted to know, what was your thought of Colin Quinn Explains the New York Times? Yeah, so that's an interesting point. That doesn't come up very often. Colin Quinn Explains the New York Times was a bit that he did where he would kind of sit there and it was clearly like somebody somewhere had a germ of an idea of how would Colin be at doing Weekend Update because he would talk about things from the headlines, but he would try and talk about them in like a little bit more of a simple way. So it wasn't, you know, Weekend Update is very like fake newscast, you know, guy in a tie and a suit, you know. And, uh, you know, just sort of making jokes on it. But uh, th I, I thought that that was a funny segment. Uh, you know, the idea of Colin Quinn, you know, and one of his other recurring characters was this guy, Joe Blow, who you know, had the lunchbox. And uh, so, yeah, I don't I don't I don't think I agree. I would I would believe Colin uh, that he would have just thought that, you know, whichever writer he collaborated with on that or if he wrote it himself, it was just like, oh, this is a fun idea. And maybe because of that, somebody started to think like, oh, this is who uh, would be good for Weekend Update. Supposedly, and this wasn't like something that I knew at the time, but uh, I, I'd heard in time since that what they their first choice was to get Craig Kilborn from The Daily Show, which is that's what he was doing at the time, and have him do Weekend Update. So somebody somewhere wanted that. And I don't know if there were other people who were uh, a, a, you know, a choice in there. I know uh, Al Franken always felt like he should be the one to be doing Weekend Update all the way back to when Dennis Miller started doing it. But uh, so, yeah, but that's the short answer is I, I would believe that, uh, you know, Colin just thought it was a fun bit. And then maybe that sort of that was the chicken or the egg. It was that that was the egg, which then hatched into Colin doing Weekend Update. I thought it was more like a tentpole replacing Spade in America. Yeah. Like, yeah, Spade in America was a weird choice because you had two desk pieces back to back. That was Spade's last year. That was the first year with uh, Will Ferrell and Sherry Terry, you know, that cast. And Spade was still there. And it was it was weird to have that segment, Spade in America. You know, He did a couple of, um, what's it called, his piece. Uh... Yeah, he would do remotes. Like he got a tattoo with Sean Penn. He did stuff like that. I think he went to... 
batting practice at Yankee Stadium, maybe. I forget. Oh, that was a Conan bit. But, you know, he would go out and do stuff, right. and then he would present it during the show. It definitely created a different look for SNL. And, I, you know, I mean, Spade had been on for five, six years at that point, so he probably was like, oh, I'll come back, but let's do something different, you know? I like the one where he's outside because it was the storm of the century. Uh, yeah. And he's like, what, Norm's still doing update? And, he, and he's making fun of like, Marion Barry smokes crack. We get it. And he's like yeah. looking in his watch. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I remember. I remember that. Uh, that was my senior year of high school when we had all that snow in the New York area. And uh, yeah, I mean, they didn't, they had trouble getting an audience for that show, but they did it anyway. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, I don't know that that was one of their best episodes, but it was, there was, it was a very fun sort of local feel to it because it was so impacted by all the snow. Yeah. I'm from Massapequa. So I remember Christopher Walken. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I forgot it was Christopher Walken. Oh. I have this thing where I can I know every date and the host and the musical guest, which is sad. That's interesting. No, I know, but uh, some of them stand out. You know, like there's just things that you know, like you know what some people think is the greatest episode in the entire run of the series. I believe aired on April twenty first, nineteen seventy eight, uh, which is Steve Martin Blues uh, Brothers. Yeah. And I thought it was the twenty. I thought it was the 22nd. You might be right. It could be the 22nd. <laughs> I wish I was like, oh, I was trying to trick you. That's why I said the 21st. But uh, but yeah, and he does King Todd on that, you know. Yeah. So it's like you have this Blues Brothers performance, you have that. There's all these great iconic sketches in it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, that yeah, but that's interesting that uh, uh, now does that go all the way up to present day or is it more like the, the classic era of the show where you feel like you could do that? It stops. It stops when uh, Norm when Norm gets fired from Weekend Update. All right. Well, there you go. So, yeah, yeah. I've like, seen I've seen every episode since January tenth, nineteen ninety. I haven't missed one. Did would you always watch it live? Because I would record it. I would well, record it. On, on I would attempt hour. to. Yeah. I always record it, but I tried to stay awake. Yeah, that was the problem that the show uh, was a little erratic quality wise, and I couldn't always uh, I couldn't always stay awake, you know, but uh, yeah, like towards the end of the 88, 89 season, uh, that was when I was making sure that if I wasn't watching it, I was at least recording it to, you know, watch sometime on Sunday. So you were there when John Goodman and Dan Aykroyd hosted as the Blues Brothers for Blues Brothers 2000. Um, I, I, I believe you're correct. If it is between January and May of 2000, I believe I was, yeah, I believe I was there for that. Cause I don't think I, sorry, I said 2000, I meant 1990. No, it was 99, 98, 98. Oh yeah. Paul, Paul was the musical guest. Okay. So 1998 is when I'm there. 2000, I got a joke on, I was jumping ahead. Uh, so yeah, I graduated college in 1998, so January through May uh, 1998. I believe I was there for every episode. I may have missed one, but uh, I, I, if I missed the actual show date, I was still there during the week. What was like the, your favorite moment at, with a cast member during that time? That's a good question. Um, I think that uh, some, you know, like Tim Meadows was one of the nicest guys ever. And he had been on uh, like seven seasons at that point, And he would go on and do some more. Uh, um, Daryl Hammond was nice enough, but just weird. You know what sure. I mean? Like it was just like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, he doesn't seem to process information the way the rest of us uh, do. Uh, in general, Will Ferrell was very nice. I, I think that, because I had a personal relationship with Colin, Colin Quinn, that was probably, uh, you know, what I think of the most was, you know, he would be very encouraging. He knew that I, even though I was an intern, he knew that I submitted jokes. So he would, in the elevator, he would suggest like, here's some stuff that we need jokes for this week. You know, you got anything on that? Send it my way. You know, that was very encouraging. Uh, and getting to know Norm MacDonald, I mean, just the fact that he knew who I was at all. And my name was Christian. And he was really good friends with uh, Dan Wilson in research, who, if you're a scholar of the show, uh, people know that, uh, that sorry, uh, there were so Dave Wilson was the, the, the father 
who directed like the first 20 seasons of the show. And uh, Dan Wilson was his older son and Tom Wilson also worked there. And I was a research intern. So I worked with both Dan and Tom Wilson. And uh, Norm was really good friends with Danny Wilson. And uh, he would call all the time for him. And because my name was Christian at some point, you know, he just started being like, hey, is this, a, is this Jew? And I'm like, what? Like, somebody's named Christian is named Jew. And I'm like, all right, that's actually pretty funny. So it turned into a thing, you know? So it's like, it's like dumb. But in the moment, I'm like, this is really cool. <laughs> Norm gave me a nickname. And then years later, when I would, uh, when I was producing Dennis Miller's radio show, at least for a while, we had Norm call it every week. So having any kind of relationship of interaction with somebody like Norm MacDonald was crazy to me, you know, because it was so funny. And it was definitely a definitely a very unique person. Sometimes I would, you know, he, we would want to go over things that he would talk about on the show the next day. I'd be on the phone with him for an hour. And I'm like, I love Norm MacDonald, but at some point I got to go home. You know, I can't, I can't stay here and be on the phone. I shouldn't have answered my office phone. You know, I should have uh, let him call me on my cell. But uh, just getting to know people like that was uh, was great, you know. And you worked at SNL 25. Yeah, that was when I was a page at NBC. Uh, I had, uh, because I had been an intern there only about a little bit more than a year earlier, I knew who a lot of people were. I knew where things were in and around the studio. So uh, towards the end of the previous season, so like the last couple weeks of the 98 to 99 season, so like May of 99, I filled in because uh, like everybody who sat at the page desk, which people who see the show, there's that desk right outside the big double door studio doors. Uh, so I, I worked that the last couple weeks, but then when the 25th anniversary started, there were three brand new uh, NBC pages. So somebody had to train them. So it was me who had only done it for two weeks. So I got to work that 25th anniversary special. And part of that was, on the actual show day, just escorting talent uh, to their dressing rooms, you know, and getting to make small talk with Billy Crystal, who just randomly was put into his old dressing room. So he was telling me about all the dressing rooms around him and just things he remembered. And it's like, I got to go back to work and get more people, but I'd like to stay here and talk to Billy Crystal some more, you know? And you asked to be the guy who escorted Dennis Miller up. Yeah, there was a, out of anybody, that was who I wanted to meet because uh, I was a, a huge fan of his. You know, he was uh, still doing the wildly successful HBO show that he was doing. And, uh, you know, his Off White album, is, I contend, is still like one of the best comedy albums, like produced, at least in my lifetime. And uh, so, yeah, I was a huge fan. I just wanted to meet him and say hi. You know, and that was it. You know, we. Uh, we we didn't uh, you know we didn't have uh, cameras on our phones at that point so I, I didn't even have a cell phone at that point I didn't get it till later I had a pager but anyway so yeah I wanted to just meet him and I talked to him you know just for like a like two minutes and he said that uh, you know he hadn't been there in a long time he hadn't been there since he left the show and uh, I was just like well why haven't you been here and he's like it's not the kind of place that my wife wants me to hang out. <laughs> Which I thought was a, a great answer, and I I know him really well now, and I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's it's a very showbiz place, and he's lived in California really since he left the show, you know. So, uh, but he he still hasn't. He's never come back to host. I don't think that ever interested him. Uh, and that 25th anniversary, I believe, is the only appearance he's made on the show since he left. He didn't want to go for the 40th, or he oh, he didn't it. go. For he, I believe he had a, a conflict. I think he had uh, previously booked a gig somewhere or something, but uh, I, you know, I think that it was, it was a relief maybe because it didn't seem like he wanted to go, but I do remember at that time him and Dana Carvey saying like, well, maybe they would go for the 50th, which if you count seasons, it's next year. If you count years, it's in 2025. So I'm not quite sure, but the SNL 50th somehow is, uh, you know, and I, I remember, you know, watching the 15th and being so excited for it, you know. And it makes you wonder, like, the Tonight Show is going to be 75 in, like, in yeah. five years. Nobody seems to care. No, no. I mean, I think that, the you know, it's different, too, because even though the cast change on SNL, it is still largely the same show. Maybe not 
as it was in 1975, but by 1977, it basically was yeah. this show. Uh, and so people think of it and it's mostly been this way, you know, there's time periods where they would have comedians on, you know, Sam Kinison, Harry Shearer, mm. uh, not Harry Shearer, uh, the, the Harry Anderson from Night Court, yeah. you know, you'd have stuff like that, but for the most part, it's still uh, pretty much the same show. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the tonight show now doesn't really resemble the Johnny Carson tonight show, let alone the the Jack Parr show or the Steve Allen tonight show, you know, I think the only, I think Carl Reiner was the only thing that until he died was the only thing that kept all those together. Cause he was a guest on all of the tonight shows. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Mel Brooks was on everyone after Steve Allen. So. Oh, that's interesting that um, Steve Allen didn't have Mel Brooks on. He wasn't known. Hmm. Oh, good time. reason then. <laughs> He, he yeah. was he was the kid in the hall. That's what the name of the troop came from. You know, the kid yeah. in the hall that Steve Litz and Caesar used to call. Yeah, the, 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 there'd be these uh, like wannabe writers out, literally out in the hallway that were just waiting for the opportunity to throw a joke that could get added. And it's like, ah, oh, this one's from the kids in the hall. And yeah, that was that was Sid Caesar who coined that, or was it Sid Caesar or was it Steve Allen who coined the phrase? No, it was Sid Caesar talking mm -hmm. about either. You know, Woody Allen or all the other yeah. guys that were not on the at the table yet. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, there was a point where Comedy Central would uh, rerun your show of shows. And I, I've seen some of them. And it was just it was, you know, I hadn't seen any of that stuff. And it was fascinating to see shows like that. The Jack Benny program. Uh, and some of them, you know, held up and were funny. And then just, you know, some weren't. Um I was always fascinated by You Bet Your Life, the Groucho Marx game show, because it was supposedly so raunchy. They would like film it for an hour and then they would cut it down to half an hour. But I don't know. I saw there was some like museum of radio and television special. They showed like an unedited one and it was like he used the word keister, you know, so like it's not that you know, it's not even close to what you would think was racy for even like, you know, the 50s. So. Yeah, some of that stuff, it's, you, you know, I, I never quite could wrap my head around like er, Ernie Kovacs, but a lot of it, a lot of that stuff that has the structure for, you know, comedy writing for television uh, was always fascinating to see. Plus, a lot of the things that Groucho said was scripted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he is very good at the quips, but a lot of those quips are planned. Yeah, right, exactly. The, if you would have came a couple the episode before you came, that would have been Helen Hunt and Hansen and Todd Hundley was on. <laughs> Todd Hundley from the Mets, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was the Christmas show at the end of 97 and uh yeah, I was uh some of the interns had uh stuck around from that point, but uh, no, I was I was not there at that point. That's funny. I did I actually didn't remember that Todd Hundley was on that, but um yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge Mets fan. As oh, okay. As. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I remember, and uh, when during you know the uh, the during the Subway series in 2000, like they had Baja Men not as the musical guest, but they performed sort of like on the on at home base, like with the house band, just as they went to commercial. So there, yeah, there was there was that moment in time. You know, every every once in a while, uh, the, the Mets get a little attention. And during the strategery sketch, Jim Lehrer goes, and that's a two-two pitch to uh, Matt Frank. Oh, I'm sorry. The uh, debates <laughs> go about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> those uh, those debate sketches. I mean, going all the way back to, uh, I was told there would be no no math. I mean, I'm sure you know, but it's just so impressive that all the great debate sketches were all written by Jim Downey, who recently was a guest on Conan O'Brien's podcast. And it was great. Oh, and knew him really well. And we had him on a few times. That's just a guy that hit stories about it. He used to share an office with Bill Murray, you know, I mean, it was just like, you know, such an interesting guy and uh, you know, and, and definitely somebody who put the funny ahead of, where he leaned politically on anything you know he knew what was funny and you know dennis even talked about it it's like if you do the news on saturday Night live you're making fun of who the president is most of the time that dennis was there it was reagan so that's who he made fun of and then it was bush senior you know so it's like that's just that's just what it is you know 
and he made fun of Clinton a lot on HBO. It just kind of depends on the moment you were there, but uh, yeah. So uh, I know it's just so many really great. Like, I don't know at what point. And I, I think, look, when I was a, an intern and a page, uh, uh, Jim Downey was still there. You know, he and Norm both got fired from Weekend Update, but Jim Downey was still around. I think Lauren really liked having his voice there. But um, yeah, so anyway, so I just brought him up because uh, he's definitely somebody that uh, I know guys like you and me know who he is, but uh, doesn't get enough credit for people who are fans of the show. I wrote an a, a actual letter, paper letter to him to, to invite him on, but yeah. He's Did a, you hear a, back or no. uh, that's what, uh, that's what Colin Quinn says, except for the fact that he does do some podcasts, you know, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't like doing them, but he'll mostly just do his friends podcasts. You know? I, I, w- I was just on a podcast for Siren Live, the greatest cast member ever podcast. I don't know if you know any of the SNL podcasts that are around, but uh, I don't know. So I just came on to state my case for uh, John Lovitz and I sent him the, the, the you know the uh, link and he said i'm very flattered thank you very much so that was that was great so you sent it to love it yeah oh yeah 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 i i know him a little bit i've uh you know he he uh he was a guest for the 500th episode of my podcast the black cast which i really appreciated and i i you know i know him in real life but he uh he is so funny and he was for a moment in time, like one of the biggest cast members on the show. I think he might get forgotten a little bit, but um, Dennis Miller talks about sort of the realization of just how smart John Lovitz was and just the way that he thought about comedy because people remember his liar character. And when Dennis introduced him in dress rehearsal, he said, uh, you know, the president of uh, Pathological Liars Anonymous, Tommy Flanagan. And then he goes and he does the whole thing. And then John just tells him afterwards. He's like, no, it's not his name. He's like, well, what did I say wrong? It's Tommy Flanagan. He's like, no, his name's Tommy Flanagan. He's such a liar. He even lies about his own name. And he's like, oh, my God, I get it. You know? And, you know, guys, it, having a cast that had Lovitz, Phil Hartman, and Dana Carvey, you know, just guys that think about comedy in such, you know, one, thoughtful ways, but specific unique ways that really nobody else does i think to me i i I would never discredit the original cast because they were the beginning but just for me my favorite era of snl is really that 86 to 90 probably not 91 but um you know uh and i just the the show was so well established at that point i i think it was easier to make it work um so in any case, I uh, yeah. So I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of that era. I love guys like Lovitz and Carvey, and the fact that they both have been on my podcast. I know it's only because I know Dennis Miller, but it's fine. <laughs> you know, I lo- I love both of them. They're both great. I always thought that if you look at the 14th season, it doesn't have a bad episode. 88, 89, it yeah. doesn't have a bad one. It's the only season that doesn't have a bad one. It's funny you say that because it was a long project. From when I, uh, but I, I was there six days a week on show weeks when I was an intern. I made a copy of every episode from that season, 1998 uh, to 1989, because I had some of them I recorded off television, but I was just like, oh, I'll just get them. You know, they're on VHSs. I, I, th- I have them somewhere. I don't know if they play anymore because that's 25 years ago. But um, yeah, that, that specifically because you had everybody, it was all figured out. Uh, I think the next year is when they added uh, Mike Myers. He came in January of that year. And there's like that moment in time where Ben Stiller was on for just a couple weeks. Um, And uh, yeah, but I think that they really, yeah, they were definitely, and they just had some great hosts, you know? I mean, uh, Ed O'Neill only hosted once, but that's one of my favorite episodes. Oh, yeah. You got a problem, lady. You know, you know what you need. You know what you need. Headache medicine. Yeah. It's such a, yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. And uh, yeah. And uh, with it, we, yeah. And then you know there was um, so much fuss over when Andrew Dice Clay hosted, and um, you know that 
that episode got heavily doctored in reruns on Comedy Central. So I was like, oh, I have a VHS of the way that it aired on NBC when it was live, you know, so stuff. That's that's a big part of the appeal of that show is, you know, when stuff happened live, you know, that that was my bar mitzvah. It was a VCR to tape the tape. It's a great cast. I had to tape Saturday Night Live. So, yeah, we had a VCR early. We had one Christmas. 1984 we got it because my mom wanted to uh, she was a huge star trek fan still is we we the, our whole family was but the reruns on in new york channel 11 wpix they aired at midnight so she wanted to set the timer and record them because she really wanted to finally get to see the trouble with tribbles episode that she remembered from when she was in high school but hadn't seen in like 15 years and so you know so we had it from that point and um Shortly thereafter is when I started figuring out, like, oh, I'll record, you know, SNL and um, like Christopher Reeve hosted during the um, eighty four eighty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, there there would be times like that where I'm like, oh, I'm going to record this show. Oh, this is kind of funny. It was a little bit later that I was like, I need to see this every week. You know, Jackie Rogers Jr.'s hundred thousand dollar jackpot wad. Yeah, that's that's an amazing character. And the fact that that character is Jackie Rogers Jr. Because Jackie Rogers was killed in the first Jackie Rogers sketch. Just, uh, you know, the idea that you had to he, he's junior, you know, <laughs> and yeah. it's supposed to be Sammy Davis Jr. as an albino. Oh, that's funny. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's because the mannerisms are the same. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I don't think I ever thought of that. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because Billy Crystal did a great Sammy Davis Jr., but of course he did it in blackface, you know, and it's, uh, you know, you you know, you you can't I mean, you shouldn't fault someone for doing something that was considered acceptable in the time. You know, I I have a, I have this thing, though, with him and with uh, Daryl Hammond when he when Daryl Hammond would do Jesse Jackson. Oh, yeah. It's not to, I mean, I'm a white person, I'm a white guy. Uh, sure. I don't know if you could tell, but it's, <laughs> to, it's, it's, I wouldn't consider that blackface. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the Jesse Jackson, uh, you know, that he did, uh, that Daryl did. Yeah. Um, I, I actually hadn't thought of it. It wasn't, wasn't my, you know, Daryl did so many great impressions, but right. uh, obviously sometimes it, it called for that. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess. I guess it's not for guys who look like us to decide whether or not it is, but at the same time, you can't look at television from 1984 through the lens of even 20 years later, much less 40 years later. You know, I actually, I don't, I'm sorry. I want to talk about your career, but there's a funny story about, do you remember the Christopher guest, Billy Crystal sketch where they were Negro league baseball players? <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I thought you were going to talk about the uh, hate when that happens, those guys. But uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking. Oh no, no, about. no, no, I love those guys. Those guys, those guys, right? Yeah, they had a novelty record of a song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I had on the woman who made the uh, the videos, the SNL shorts, digital shorts, whatever they called them in the '80s, and she said that that down on that Monday she got a call from Bill Cosby. Saying, oh. I'd love to have those two um, elderly, those two gentlemen over to the Cosby Show set for for lunch. And she's like, "What? Well, you, you can't do that." And Cosby said, like, "Oh, they're out of town." And she's, uh, "No, they're Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest." <laughs> and then he just blew up on her. Uh, Which I said, yeah, better than what you could have gotten. Better than what you could have gotten. And then obviously, you know, you've got Eddie Murphy talking about getting calls from Bill Cosby, you know, in raw, he's talking about, you know, the filth, filth, learn filth. And it's uh, if, if ever there was somebody who shouldn't have been judging what any other person on earth was doing, it's Bill Cosby. And they always insist calling him Dr. Cosby. But uh, yeah, I, um, yeah, I interviewed to be the uh, audience coordinator on his show Cosby, which wasn't the Cosby show. It was his CBS show. And they made it very clear. Uh, I was so glad to not get hired for it because it was like, I, I'm pretty sure you weren't supposed to look at him. You know, I mean, you know, he wasn't going to look twice at me. You know, <laughs> my my drinks would have been fine. But uh, anyway, you work for Al Gore. 
Yeah, sort of. Uh, so my uh, my aunt uh, did work for uh, an offshoot. This is when he was vice president. So the office of the vice president uh, had an initiative called uh, NPR, but not the like PBS radio. It's the National Performance Review, and there uh, each government agency would loan out one person. And they all worked in this place and everybody worked together to try and figure out a way to make their department of government work more efficiently and, you know, more uh, cost effectively. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those simple ideas. And, you know, it's at least and it was a, it was sort of a bipartisan effort. You know, really, it, yes, he was a Democratic vice president, but this was one of the initiatives of his office. Uh, and uh, my understanding is that it, uh, you know, they figured out a lot of ways. They got a lot of government forms and things online for the first time, and this was uh, the summer of 1997. So a little bit earlier than that, they that was what their focus was: just getting stuff online, getting people so that they could have access to things. So yeah, and uh, just I knew that it would uh, it, it it would be an interesting thing on a resume. I knew I wanted to work on comedy shows, but. Uh, uh, I thought it would be a, it would be a good experience to have, so I did that uh, the summer. Yeah, the summer before I interned on Conan, so it was the summer of '97, and then the fall of '97. Uh, yeah, I, I drove up from Washington D.C. for my interview for uh, Conan, but uh, yeah, so uh, not not really anything overly political. But what the interesting thing was because it said White House intern on my resume for years. I would have job interviews where people would ask if I knew Monica Lewinsky. And I'm like, well, no, I was there at a different time, but I did meet her when she was a guest on SNL. Uh, I was at the page desk in May of 1999 when she was on the show. So, you know, I talked to, talked to her, you know, if she needed something, we would get it for her, that sort of a thing. And uh, so it was a, it was a really good resume point. It was a good job interview question because it was like, you could ask me about this one thing, which I could talk about, but it also ties into another thing that I did. So other experience that I had. Cuba Gooding Jr. And Ricky Martin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ricky Martin performed without shoes, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, that yeah, I, I'm pretty I sure. Yeah. There were a couple of those that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the uh, the Backstreet Boys were on either that season or, or when I was an intern, and uh, I, people didn't know who they were. You know the the people who worked on the crew, but uh, you know watching the the bands would would get an extra rehearsal. Um, I think before like during the dinner break uh, before dress rehearsal, and I just remember. You know, everybody worked on the crew, just the regular guys, you know, the union guys, just all watching and just laughing hysterically as that these these five guys, you know, dancing around on chairs and moving them and stuff like that. But Ricky Martin was another one. That's why I brought that up was they were just like, look at this guy. <laughs> but uh, it's a huge song. Living the Vita Loca. If you if you can get your show having some of those, you know, huge hits of the day on uh, no, nobody would say no. And that's actually not that bad of a song. It's all I right. Yeah, I mean, I, I would prefer to any. I would prefer to any Backstreet Boys song. That's for sure. Exactly. Desmond Child is the reason. Well, yeah, Desmond Child, who is responsible for some great uh, Alice Cooper, one of my favorites, and uh, Aerosmith, and uh, basically, you know, broke Bon Jovi, you know, in a big way. So yeah, uh, I forgot that that was a Desmond Child song, but you're absolutely right. That, that guy knows how to write songs for a lot of different genres, not just hard rock. And he was also a musical guest on Siren Live because was it with his band? Rouge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were Gilda's band in uh, the Gilda show on Broadway. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't remember. That's uh, that's and G.E. Smith was the guitarist in the band. That's where they met. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's uh, see, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I look. I know a lot about this show, but uh, I, I, you got a lot of stuff in your head that I don't. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, but you got always find to always find to compare notes. You got a lot of stuff in your head that's like uh, normal. <laughs> when Dennis Miller, um, when he's not talking uh, and you're just having a regular conversation with him, does he pepper his regular speech with? The kind of Dennis Millerisms that he does on air? No, I mean, in some ways, you know, one of the things that I think he liked about me was that 
you know, my reference drawer went pretty deep as well, but it was a different set of references than what he would pull from so that I, I would make him laugh. But when we were doing the radio show and the podcast together, he was definitely spending a lot of energy to try to make me laugh, to try and have something really obscure. And sometimes that show was just the two of us just laughing where we couldn't breathe because something was so funny, but I don't know if anybody at home enjoyed it. I just know I did. I think once we once we made a sticks downy reference in his act, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, who remembers the guy on two episodes of Happy Days who played the drums? Yeah, uh, that's that's nice. Yeah, I mean, because it's like I would be proud if I mentioned you know Pinky or Leather Tuscadero, but uh, right. that's that's pretty great. So um, in general, you know, Dennis talks about his vocabulary. Uh, he was homeschooled for a while. I don't. I don't know enough to tell you like at what point and for how many years. I know he also went to public high school, I think. But part of that was I think every day he like learned a new word and in the way where he, you know, was able to use it. So I think um, you know, sometimes he uses big words, but uh, you know, I think that it's I wouldn't want anybody to think that he's in any way like, you know, like a know it all because he is always the first to admit, I don't know anything about I don't even saying that that's what you were getting at. This is one of those things he always made clear on the show, the 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 radio show. It was like, I don't know anything about this. We got this guy on, he knows a lot about it, you know. We're we're gonna have on an economist, you know, like Thomas Sowell. We're gonna have on a, a, a political writer like Victor Davis Hansen, because these guys are so much smarter than me that uh I, I just want to hear what they have to say. Maybe I'll understand it better. So uh I think that for the sake of a joke, yeah, probably you toss around a couple of words that uh, you know, that make it seem uh sort of next level. But for the most part, I would say that he uh, you know, he would just be looking for things that are funny, but he wouldn't pretend that he knew more. You know, if you ask a follow-up question, he's like, I don't know, it just was a joke, you know. So talking to him, talking to him one-on-one is very casual, is very laid back. He's still very funny. Um he's actually about to have a birthday. Uh, so I'm uh, hoping to try and have lunch with him. He's uh, he's turning 70, so I feel like I, I feel like for once I'll pay for uh, taking him out for lunch. But he's always very funny to talk to. His uh, mind is always working in the same way that uh, anybody who's a fan of him would appreciate. And uh, I think he's just happy being mostly retired to the to the chagrin of people who built their career on working for him, like I did. Uh, it's you know, but uh, I'm I'm glad that he's happy. Oh no, I didn't mean that. I just meant, did he have the cadence and the? Oh yeah, he talks the... like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No. But he also knows that some of it's a put on, like the like he loves the Dana Carvey impression because it's like bah, 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 you know that he's like, yeah, I get it that that's like, especially like that era of him, you know, like the eighties, right. the the tossing his hair around. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like all that stuff. Like he, yeah, I mean, he doesn't. He's not. He hasn't been like that in a very long time. Probably because of the impression. But even by the time he was on HBO, he wasn't really like that anymore. You know. Never heard him say like playing Stratego with Judy Landers. No, but I guarantee if I if I think of it, uh, the next time I have lunch with him, he'll probably say something that will be like that. And uh, if I remember, I'll jot it down and I'll email you. I'll be like, oh, actually, he didn't say Stratego with Judy Landers. However, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, and he had the the great line about uh, 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 I don't want to get it wrong. You know, the Denny uh, Terrio. No, no, uh, no. The uh, Hillary Clinton's been cheated on more than somebody playing Scrabble with gypsies or so I, I can't remember the joke. You know what I no. mean? But it's uh I thought I had the joke in my head and then I realized I can't I couldn't unravel it. But there's a lot of that sort of a thing, you know. Oh uh, I thought it's Denny Terrio when he hosted Dance Fever. I haven't yeah. I haven't had seen choreography that stiff since the Lee Harvey Oswald trip prison transfer. Uh and then also talking about Adrian Zamed uh on uh on, on Dance Fever and or TJ Hooker. Yeah there's you know, that I referenced it earlier. His off-white album is really the primer on that era of Dennis Miller, why he was funny, the way he structured structured jokes. You know, I spent some time in the deep south, a place that is anything but deep. It's the kind of place where they read Beetle Bailey with a yellow highlighter. I haven't listened to the album in probably like 25 years, but just some things stay in your head, you know. That and Mr. Miller goes to Washington also. That, the, those are both great. Yeah, all of, I thought all of his HBO specials were great, and um, 
I've enjoyed the recent specials, and it's the, the, the one in the year. The, the one in the year two thousand was great. That one, yeah, and uh, he did one a few years ago where uh, I would never say that I opened for him, but I did warm up the crowd for for a, a, a TV recording. Uh, I did that a couple of times, but his most recent special, I think, it was twenty eighteen, maybe twenty nineteen, and uh, he recorded it in Knoxville. But um, still, yeah, I, I still did see that. Fun. That was really that was, that was really good too. Yeah, he, and I think that look, I I understand that uh, you know sometimes. I think people's biggest uh, misconception about him is that he's this super far right Republican. I think he's very conservative on a number of issues, but liberally, he's very uh, sorry. Socially, he's very liberal. And I think a lot of people don't they just paint with a very wide brush. But also, if you're a Democrat who votes D on everything, you should be able to laugh at a joke about Nancy Pelosi. You know what I mean? It shouldn't, you know, you don't have to laugh at a joke about her husband getting beat up, but a joke about her that Dennis made in 2018 should be funny. The same time, no matter how Republican you are, who's funnier than Ted Cruz? You know, there's just, there's you're endless, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, and the, to bring it over to the, the show that I do for the, on the, the, who are these podcast network? Who are these broadcasters? We get uh we get notes we get comments from people who are like oh great these uh these these libtards and then you know and then depending on the next week it's like oh okay well they obviously you know these guys are you know followers of QAnon but it's just like there's a funny video of the guy who is president wandering around the stage you know shaking hands with a with a an American flag I'm going to show that because it's funny and if the guy who used to be president doesn't realize, you know, what town he's in, in Ohio. And, uh, you know, he makes a quick recovery. That's funny too. It's like, it should all be funny. And, um, a, a, a friend of mine, her father was a writer for a long time and he, uh, he was, he wrote for magazines, he wrote books and he, he said, he told me, you know, I was in like high school, uh, as an aspiring writer. And he was like, he always had a post-it on, uh, on his desk and it said, kill your darlings. And that's phrase has been used other times, but it's just like, don't, nothing's too precious that you can't say something about it as long as it's worth saying, you know, you don't want to comment on tragedies. Some people can pull it off. Guys like Norm Macdonald might've been able to do it. Uh, you know, if, if you, you went after it in the right way. Somebody like Gilbert Gottfried, you know, he lost a lot of money by uh, upsetting the people at Affleck, uh, you know. So uh, there's something to be said for, you know, being able to be funny and being able to laugh at something, even if you don't agree at the politics uh, behind it. You know, Dennis used to always go on the, the John Stewart version of The Daily Show when he was in New York. And one of the appearances, uh, John said, like, I, I don't think I agreed with anything that you said but it was all really funny. Please come back on the next time you're in town. And that's the way it should be, you know? And, you know, Dennis was on Jimmy Kimmel a few times. There's a lot of stuff they don't agree on, but it was a great appearance, you know? And Jimmy appreciated that Dennis came with a bunch of jokes and that's the way it should be. But we don't really live in that, that world anymore. Ian. I pretend to, I mean, yeah. I just, I'll say anything. And I have this weird thing where I, I uh, can go up to people and say things that are wildly inappropriate and get away with it because I look very non-threatening. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no, true. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, my my kids are eight, and the other one's about to be six. So there's um, there's opinions. You know, I I, I use the example of um, I think it's I think it's Travolta in Pulp Fiction, but it could be Sam Jackson. I'm like, I don't even have an opinion. I say that a lot. You know, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure it's Travolta. It's like, I don't even have an opinion. It's like, I'm not, there's things that I don't need to have an opinion on. And by that, I mean, I don't need to publicly share my opinion, but sometimes there's things that are funny. You know, if, if, right. uh, if Hugh Hefner dies, I'm going to go ahead and write a tweet that I think is funny. And I, you know, I'm sorry if his family sees it, <laughs> but you know, then there's other times, you know, Kevin Brennan just uh, got in a lot of trouble for uh, his take on Matthew Perry dying, which wasn't an actual joke. It was just ha 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 ha. And I'm like, you know, uh -huh. if you have a joke, there's a chance that somebody might see it, you know, 
Uh, but uh, you know, if if you're just like, oh, I'm just I'm just here to, you know, they they call them what edge lords these days. People that are just like, I'm just here to shock you. Uh, it it you know, it doesn't it doesn't always work. At, at work, when somebody famous dies, I walk in the next day and they go, "What you got? What are you gonna say?" <laughs> I did that for a little bit, but now sometimes uh, I would I would post them, and sometimes I would put jokes on my podcast, the Black Cast. And uh, now, if it's if I think it, if it's if it, I still think it's good, but I don't want any kind of headaches from it. I just text it to like five people, and and they're like, "Oh, that's great! You should post it." I'm like, "Nope, <laughs> that's just for you." Like when Whitney Houston died, I said, "It's take a nap or take a bath." <laughs> Not exactly both. right. Yeah, but I do answer a couple of questions really quickly. Sure, I absolutely. I started listening to, to to the Black Cast and Who Are These Broadcasters because I, I heard you on Blind Mike's podcast. Which, uh, Why You're Laughing, is one of my favorite podcasts. I'm a big fan of, of Blind Mike. I think you Blind Mike Geary. And uh, I tolerate Craig, but I really like I really like Blind Mike. Okay, so that's, that's the whole... Okay, so this is the stuff I don't know because I don't know the whole channel. I don't know people. Who's Hackride? Hackride is a demon, and uh, he's uh, he is. Uh, I mean, I believe last I checked, he resides in hell, and uh, he's still able to produce podcasts from there. Um, and if you peel back the Hackride backstory a little bit, uh, un- unlike some of these online characters that have avatars, you know, your obnoxious Johns, your Cardiff electrics, you can find out who Hackride really is. He does talk about his real name and stuff like that. But I, I prefer, I, I like all the, the circumstance. I like the, the glitz and the glamor. I love the talking potato. Uh, I don't know about wheat diff, but corn diff is okay. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's what, that's yeah. what, that's what I was. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, it's a, it's all offshoots of, you know, what they call the dabble verse, which is people who comment on stuttering John Melendez. Uh, and a lot of these, there's a lot of people who hack rides, one of them who wanted to have some degree of anonymity, but wanted to go on the internet and talk about stuff, you know? Sometimes people have jobs where they don't want it to get back to their employers that they're, you know, they're talking about things or maybe even using some kind of language. Uh, but yeah, so that's who some of those, uh, some of the people I referenced are. Okay. Carl Hamburger. Yes, sir. Is that his real last name? It is not, but uh, it's okay. very similar to that. His, I, don't his need, yeah, I don't need to. Know yeah, you it. can find it. You can you can find it. It's it's out there. John Melendez says his real name. It's very similar to Hamburger, uh, but uh, I believe that he likes the last name Hamburger because, like me, he's a fan of the '80s comedian Hamburger Jones, Neil. whose punchline oh. Hamburger was like really just part of his act. Yeah, I remember so. that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy's oh, great. By com- the way, there's a comedian Neil Hamburger who tells like really old joke like like a jack of the joke man type yeah yeah i i I, i've heard of neil hamburger yeah yeah okay so yeah okay then that makes a little more that makes a little bit more sense because i I got into the dabble verse very very late i i don't know like i didn't know half of these new comedians i I feel like an old man um because i i just decided that i don't like what's on tv i'm gonna just watch cheers again from the beginning Cheers is great. Yeah. Some things uh, really, uh, really hold up. And, you know, they were very smart that they shot it on film so that it doesn't look like sitcoms of the era because it was in a bar. If they'd shot it on videotape, it wouldn't have looked right. Night Court works on videotape, but that's my all time favorite show. So sitcom. And then then I saw there's a blind mic with the comedy. I was looking for a podcast on comedy history. And then he, you know, you were on, and so I went on to your show. Yeah, I was on the I was on the Colin Quinn episode uh, talking yeah. about some of the things I talked about here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, is Eric Zane? Uh, there was the other thing. Uh, that's his natural voice because he just sounds like a broadcast. That is that is what he talks like. Uh, that is a that is a stage name. But uh, he a number of years ago was part of a, a fairly big show called Free Beer and Hot Wings. Um, so some people know him from that, but he does the Eric Zane show now. And uh, it was Carl's idea to put the two of us together. And when we launched the show, Carl was on with both of us because Eric and I really, I mean, we still don't know each other that well, but we do a show together and we have fun. I think we have very similar senses of humor. And um, it's a lot of fun to do a show with uh, Eric Zane, 
who is uh, my co-host on Who Are These Broadcasters? Yeah, he's just like, his voice, it's like he was born with that voice. It's crazy. Yeah, no, I know. As somebody who hates his own voice, uh, I, uh, yeah. I I hate when people have like those kind of great broadcasting voices, yeah. Yeah, I met Don Pardo. Oh my I, gosh, I loved Don Pardo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so nice, and he asked me what my name was, I said it, and he goes, that'll never be on a marquee. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I've I, I I don't I don't want to burst your bubble, but I've heard him say that uh, to a number of people. There, that's a pretty uh, common anecdote. <laughs> but he did do that. He did say, "Ladies and gentlemen, Ian from English." And that was like the I was like, "That's all why? you want." Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. I I would have loved to have heard uh, Don Pardo say my name, but just you know, off air. God forbid <laughs> that it was on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for doing this. I'm a big fan of W A T B. Yes, yes, thank you. So am I. And, I. I have a lot of fun doing it. And what did, did Senator John do anything to any of anybody to get this whole thing started? Or no, he's just to... really bad. He's just really bad at podcasting. Okay. And I think if he was smart, when people started goofing on him, he would have been like, Yeah, what do they know? And moved on. But because he took things personally and he started going after the people. He created an industry where people like, you know, uh, people who were, were hand, fans of the Howard Stern show over the last couple of decades, they know who Shuli is. Shuli isn't on the Howard Stern show anymore, but he has a whole network that uh, has a few shows that focus on making fun of Stuttering John. He makes it really easy as part of what it is. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, he he did once uh, what they call stream sniping, where he was doing his show live and he went over to uh he he picked uh up a little bit of our show who are these broadcasters and he said about me he said christian you're the worst broadcaster ever and i've never had i've had some some things that i felt honored about but stuttering john melendez telling me that i'm the worst broadcaster ever is uh just one of the the biggest accomplishments probably outside of you know the birth of my children <laughs> I knew, I knew I knew he was bad, but I, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, look, it's it's like a lot of us know him from the Stern Show, and he wasn't a particularly likable guy then, you know. He was, and right. you know, there's there's so many clips that have recite have resurfaced, and uh, you know, he doesn't do himself a lot of favors, but um, you know, he's uh, he just doesn't he just doesn't seem like a, a nice guy. Uh, but I, I hope that I would be wrong and that if I knew him in private life, that he'd actually be a great guy. LFGM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. That's the important right. place to end. Exactly. All right. See you <laughs> later.